Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 26. Hear God's word to us. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But... In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome again uh, to Easter here at Christ Community's downtown campus. And Easter seems like as good a day as any um, to start off with a confession, right? Um, the day we gather together to remember that Jesus isn't dead, but three days after his death, he rose again and still lives 2,000 years later. And yet, I can guarantee, I think, that every single person in here has never had coffee with Jesus. <laughs> And I think that like many of you, my life is given to someone I've never seen. And there are days, to be quite frank, I wrestle with that. You know, I have a hard conversation where it ends in tears and brokenness. I scan the news and I find about another genocide somewhere in the world. 
And in the back of my mind creeps up the question, what if I'm wrong about all of this? Maybe you've asked that question. If you're a Christian, I'm sure you've asked it at least once. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, that might be why. But it seems like it's easier and easier in our world to be skeptical, right? You know, one of the movies that captured the attention of the Oscars was The Theory of Everything, which surveys kind of the work and life of cosmologist and atheist Stephen Hawking. And despite his paralysis, more than half of his life he spoke through a machine. And he has become one of the most brilliant minds of our time, transforming the mindset of the Western world. At age 21, he was diagnosed with a fatal illness with a life expectancy of two years, but he defies all the odds. And even for a short stint, has a beautiful, loving marriage with Jane Wilde. And at age 73 now, still says, however bad life may seem, where there is life, there is hope. However bad life may seem, where there is life, there's hope. And that, and that sounds really poetic, doesn't it? It's kind of the thing you hope to see on a bumper sticker of the car that cuts you off in rush hour traffic, right? Yeah, <laughs> where there's life, there's hope. And yet the same part of me, if I'm honest with myself, that says, and ask the question, what if I'm wrong about all of this? Ask the question of Stephen Hawking and his worldview, how do you get there? How do you honestly get to hope? And maybe I, get, I go even deeper and say, why is it that no matter our worldview, no matter our theological persuasion, we ache for something more? For longing, for meaning, for a hope, for purpose. And maybe to get even more pointed with the question, to ask ourselves, and really it's something that humankind has been asking throughout the centuries, can you have meaning apart from God? Can you have meaning in life apart from God? And as I've wrestled through this question, this is where I've landed. Yes and no. Yes and no. Let's start with the first, the yes. Um, Holocaust survivor and brilliant psychologist Viktor Frankl, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, writes that meaning in life can be discovered in your vocation, in the love you share, and even courageous suffering. And as I've got to know some of my friends who aren't Christians. They find deep meaning in pursuing and, and investing in their family or joining a cause that makes the world a better place or even excelling in their vocation. So do I think you can have a meaning in life apart from God? I think yes, but I also think no. And that's where the brilliance of the Apostle Paul really comes to play. I think this is where the brilliance of the gospel shines and really... What's so amazing about the Apostle Paul, you see, Stephen Hawking, he wrote theses. Viktor Frankl wrote books, but Paul wrote letters, rich and accessible letters. And really, he lived in many regards in the same world that you and I live in, with the same laws of gravity and broken hearts. <laughs> he shared in the human experience and shared many of our similar questions. And for Paul, everything in life, it comes down to what you do with the empty space of a tomb in the first century. For Paul, the resurrection means everything matters. And when Paul looks at everything this world has to offer and stares it square in the face, all of our fears that we try to keep at bay every day, the looming reality of death that's going to come to every single one of us in here, Paul says, in light of that, if that's all there is, then meaning in life apart from the resurrection, is thin. 
It makes living like walking on a tightrope. And some of you here this morning, you know all too well what I'm talking about. You're trying to live and things seem to be going okay and you're just trying to keep it all balanced. All the different demands you have and you're worried to death that you're going to stumble and fall off the line. And maybe, just maybe, some of you are really good at balancing it. For 60, 70, 80, 90, maybe even a century long life, at some point someone will eventually cut the line. And that's terrifying. But Paul... What I love about what he does here in 1 Corinthians 15 is he calls us to a deeper, more robust, more resilient meaning in life, a thick hope that transforms everything. And this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to see the resurrection means everything matters because because the resurrection reveals that more that each and every one of us aches for. The resurrection reveals that more that each and every one of us aches for, and then the resurrection goes a step further and even gives us the courage we crave to live into that more now. So let's first start with the resurrection reveals that more we ache for. I I grew up uh, pretty sheltered from death. I didn't go to a ton of funerals. I went to a couple growing up. But the one that really shook me first, the one that really hit home, was when a college friend of mine died. I still remember the phone call I got. I was in seminary, and a friend of mine called, and he said, Hey, Gabe, Janet was in a car accident and died instantly. And I remember how strange I felt. I remember feeling numb. And then a couple weeks later, I made it to the funeral, sitting there with hundreds of people and thinking, "Ah, This feels so strange. I don't even know how to respond to this. And then they read a journal entry of hers, and I've heard of people doing this at weddings. But this time it was different, or at funerals, not at weddings. Um, Very different uh, gathering. At funerals, but this time it was different because I was mentioned in the entry. And it struck me like a bolt of lightning, and I started weeping. Started thinking, why? Why does friendship have to end up like this? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And that sort of ache, that longing, it doesn't go away with time. Instead, it nags and it nags and it nags, especially when you've opened yourself up to the true joy of friendship, the true love of family. And as a pastor, part of my job description is funerals, right? I'm called to carry, marry, and bury them. And as time goes on, more and more of my loved ones are claimed by death. And in processing all of this, maybe some of you can relate. Leo Tolstoy, in his book, A Confession, articulates a question, I think, that comes to every single person in this room at some point. A question we seek to process in the darkest night of grief. A question I've asked, and he he writes, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live, it was, what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my life? Why should I love? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me doesn't destroy? Is there any resilient meaning in life that death's not going to take from us? Because Death's going to take everything I give my life to, whether it be my wife, Allie, my daughter, my career, my friendships. And Paul's pretty straight up in answering this question. He says, look, 
If death's really the end, if when we breathe our last, we cease to exist, then death's going to take away everything that we find our meaning in. Everything. And when you get to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 19, this is what he says. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep or have died in Christ have perished. If this, in this life, only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christ really hasn't fully and physically rose from the grave, then there isn't anything more to this life. And really, Paul goes on to even say that, hey, if you're just looking to Jesus for a little bit of inspiration here and there, a shot on a Friday night to get out and serve your neighbor, and not life-altering eternal salvation that changes and even offers more beyond the grave, then we as Christians are some of the biggest idiots in the world. We're the most to be pitied, he says if Christ really hasn't risen from the grave. He goes on later in verse 32 to say, look, if the dead aren't raised, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that's it. Life could be summed up with a start date, an expiration date, and a void in the middle. Happy Easter, right? And yet we aren't satisfied with that answer. I don't think any one of us in here, not even Stephen Hawking, is really satisfied with that answer. We still ache for more, more meaning in life today and even a future life after death that still awaits. Even though millennia after millennia, people have died and died and died. Whenever we stand next to the graveside of a loved one, it feels strange. It feels like it shouldn't be this way. It feels like a foreigner is imposed on our life. And it's because we weren't meant for that. And the Apostle Paul wants us to know that in the resurrection, we find that more that we ache for. And it's anchored in the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection. Now, the good news of Christianity has always been pretty simple, but really difficult to trust. It's that in the first century, this guy Jesus lived. He died a really brutal death. They buried him. And then three days later, he walked out of the tomb and still lives today. And maybe when you hear that, if you're anything like me, as I wrestle through my own skepticism, it's like, okay, Gabe, the walking dead is classified fiction for a reason. Because, why? Dead people stay dead. I've never seen anybody come from the dead. And guess what? Neither have I. And that's what makes so astounding what Paul says in verses 1 through 11. That's what amazes me. In verses 3 through 5, most scholars actually believe that this is an early Christian creed. One of the earliest documents we have of what the early Christians believed after the death of Jesus. And even the most liberal of biblical scholars will say verses 1 through 11 were written some 30 years after Jesus' death. You know what that means? This isn't the fabrication of legend. But this is eyewitness accounts. Legend isn't written while eyewitness accounts are still surviving because they can contradict the outrageous claims of legend. 
But instead, you have hundreds of people who have seen and interacted with the resurrected Jesus, and they're starting to tell their friends, their family, their co-workers that Jesus is indeed alive, that he's done something outrageous, he's done something unthinkable, that he's conquered death. And they're so passionate about it that they even give their lives for it in the first century. And I don't mean, you know, they just got fired from their, from their jobs. Yes, that maybe happened. But some died in gladiatorial battles because they refused to relent that Jesus truly was alive. Some held on to the confession that what they saw with their senses was so true that they were impaled with wooden stakes and set on fire until they would relent, and they never did. Jesus is alive. And I've heard on more than one occasion, and maybe you've had this conversation too, but religious people generally or ancient religious people especially are a little more gullible. They're easily manipulated, right? Because back then, they held to mythology, not science. It's not their fault. They didn't know. It was a lot easier for them to believe that this guy, this human being, this Jesus, rose from the dead. But I don't think that line of reasoning really works here. And let me show you why. It all starts with having some semblance of understanding of who the Jewish people actually are. You see, the Jewish people were some of the least likely candidates to believe that Jesus was God and that he'd rose again from the dead. If you just do a cursory reading of the history of the Jewish people, especially those first couple centuries before Christ came and especially in the first century, you'll find martyr story after martyr story where they're dying for the faith that the God, the one true God who's seated in heaven and they will not release, they will not relent of this confession to the point that they'll die for it. And then when you get to the second half of the first century AD, right after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the earliest of converts, the earliest followers of Jesus to say that he had risen were who? Jewish people who are now calling Jesus God. And they even changed when they gathered. Normally Jewish tradition, one of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath was Saturday. That's when you gather together, but now you have this Jewish contingent that are starting to meet on Sundays because this symbolized the day when Jesus rose again from the dead and they found their identity in Jesus, the Christ, the very God of very God, the Son of God. But even that I don't think is the most compelling. When you get to our passage here, you find a list of some Jewish skeptics who crossed the line to follow Jesus. In verse 7, You've got G James, the brother of Jesus, who now calls Jesus God. And I want us to just pause for a minute because there are, there's one person or a group of people in our lives who know our most embarrassing moments, our greatest faults, and not only will air our dirty laundry, but kind of take a little bit of joy in reminding us of our humanity. That's our siblings, right? Yeah, you remember, yeah, we got the same papa. Like, well, you know, it's like, come on, who are you? And yet... James calls Jesus God. What would it take for you to call your brother or sister the one true God of the universe? <laughs> There's a pause moment there, right? That's, that's pretty astounding. I think James is one of the best apologetics for the resurrection of Jesus because my sibling would have to come and get back from the dead. Like that would have to, that'd be the one thing that no one else could do. She would have to come back from the dead and say, oh, okay, there's something huge going on in your life and I need to listen to you. But not just James, you've got the Apostle Paul, formerly known, you know, as the Pharisee Saul. 
And he was the expert in the Hebrew scriptures. And he thought, and he was actually so ashamed of his Jewish brothers and sisters of proclaiming Jesus Christ as crucified and risen that he took joy in persecuting these idiots called Christians and putting them in prison. And then one day he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And everything changed. Look with me in chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, as he's writing this letter, Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And for some of you, this isn't new news, and it's not all that convincing. You know, maybe a family member dragged you to church here this morning, or maybe... You dragged yourself out of bed because you said, you know what, I'm going to give this Christianity thing one more shot this morning on Easter. That's when everybody else does, right? Um, And it's not that convincing for you, but I, I want to at least plead with you to consider the claims of Christianity. I want you to at least consider them. Sure, it's audacious. Jesus lived. He died. He rose again. Dead people stay dead. But what if What if it's actually the most plausible explanation of the evidence we have in the first century that birthed this whole movement, the church, that's been going on for two millennia, that caused people to give their lives in the most audacious of ways because of the most audacious claim they held on to? What if there really is more than meets the eye? Then it can't be ignored. The resurrection reveals that more we ache for. And I want you to think about this. Imagine you get a letter in the mail. It's from a lawyer who says, look, your great Aunt Francesca just died and she left you $3 million. Now, even if you, even if you don't think you have a great Aunt Francesca, maybe let's go even further. You have pretty good certainty. You don't have a great Aunt Francesca. You're going to still probably call your parents and do one fact-finding call just to make sure and say, now, I could be wrong here, but we don't have a great Aunt Francesca, Right? Because the the reality and what's online here is so huge, it's not a throwaway. You at least consider it. You at least ask a question. You at least make a call. And the invitation of Christianity is similar, except your whole life is on the line. And so returning to Tolstoy's question here, is there any meaning, any more meaning in life that death can't steal? Paul gives us the resounding yes. Yes. A resounding yes. And I want you to look with me in verse 20 now of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. It's in the more of Jesus' resurrection that we find that more each and every one of us is aching for. That more of meaning. That more that there is life after death. A meaningful life now and forever that not even death can steal. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we have no hope of a resurrection. If there is no life after death, then Jesus never rose again. But since we can't do scientific scientific inquiry into the life after death, at least no one I know can do that, then the best we can do is assess the historical claims of the resurrection of Jesus in space and time. And so I want to ask us a question. If the resurrection means everything matters because this resurrection reveals the more each and every one of us aches for, are you living for something more or something less?
Are you living for something more or something less? Are you living with eternal purpose? What wakes you up in the morning? What gives you energy to keep going about your tasks throughout the day? Is it your spouse, your children, your job, your friends? And these are all really good things. But without the resurrection, death will eventually take them away from you. But with the resurrection, the resurrection means everything matters. And if you embrace Jesus as your living and sovereign king over your life, you know what that means? That means your job, your vocation, it actually has lasting influence in God's restoration plan for all of creation. If you embrace Jesus as your living king, that means 